All right, we're jumping in. We're in Romans 8. We've been here this summer, and uh, begin, begin with this. Um, when you think of a sigh, what do you think about? Maybe we just need one. You guys want to do it? So what is a sigh? A study found in 2022 found that sighing was connected to emotional responses like arousal or anxiety or pain. Negative emotional states such as fear, anxiety, and sadness are in fact associated with sighing more often. Oftentimes we sigh because of pain or frustration or feeling misunderstood or a fight that you're in or a situation you have at work and your response, your bodily response can be, and it sometimes can just relieve you of certain things. And we can feel this. You know, Nick mentioned a handful of weeks ago when he talked about an earlier section of Romans 8, some of the pain of this life. And as we experience some pain in this life, we can feel like the natural response is to sigh. In Charles Spurgeon's sermon on the text that we're in this morning, he titled his sermon, The Saint's Sigh. The Saint's Sigh. And this morning we're going to look at the saint's sigh and the only hope we have in life and death. So Romans 8, we're going to be in this morning, this week and next. Starting in verse 18, uh, I'll read. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to, re- to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'd love to pray with us. Father, as we embark upon this text, many of us feeling different levels of the realities here in this text, we thank you for the only hope we have in life and death. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, remind us of the story that we're part of, we thank you that you're not finished. We thank you that you have an answer. We thank you that you've given it. Would you provide hope in Jesus' name? Amen. A couple points for us. Um, the first is this. In life, in this life, we will suffer. In this life, we will suffer. We try not to avoid that significant reality. And Paul, he introduces this reality, this reality called suffering. For those who have a tendency to over-spiritualize, it's easy to get to the latter half of the first verse that we read, which he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And some of us have a natural tendency to to forget that he talks about sufferings and over-emphasize the glory that is to be revealed. But the only way to get to glory is through the suffering. And the Bible is explicit that in life, we will bleed. In life, we will have 
sorrow. Paul uses some, some key words to describe these verses, this understanding of suffering. He talks about futility. And this word we heard about frequently when we went through Ecclesiastes uh, two years ago where, where the writer in Ecclesiastes talks about vanity of vanities. This frequent word of futility that life's just not going to give you what you hoped it would give you. It's going to end with a level of frustration and disappointment, emptiness, purposelessness. He talks about the bondage to corruption. Another phrase for that would be the, that we're enslaved to decay. You and I are enslaved in this life to the decay of this life. Decay can feel like our master and we can feel like their slave. He talks about childbirth and the pain that's in childbirth. He uses the word groaning two times. The first is a communal groaning that we can feel together, and the second is an inward groaning that we can feel, this yearning, this desire for something that isn't, that we want to be. We feel the sigh. We live in a world where the sigh always is, but sometimes the sigh can be painfully pronounced. This is why grief and lament matter so much to the church. This is why it's so imperative for us to not brush over the realities of grief and the realities of lament. It's significant for us to walk through this life well with a free heart by using the gift of grief and laments. In the famous sermon on uh, the book of Job, Jonathan Edwards speaks to this. And he noted that the story of Job is the story of all of us. That Job lost everything in one day. His, his physical health, he lost his financial stability, he lost almost all of his family. And we might not feel that in a day, but we can feel that in a lifetime. Slow drip of pain and difficulty. You know, you might, you might feel it. We all feel it when, when we do the laundry and we can't find the socks that we think we should find. I even this morning was like, where are the socks? We just bought more socks. And so that's not necessarily what the text is talking about. It's just me wanting to be honest with you. The socks drive me nuts. But more seriously, we can feel this whether it's in our youthfulness going away. In the days we once had, we don't have anymore. Whether it's dreams we had dreams of a career, or marriage, or children for which we once hoped, or it's more unexpected things like a family member's death, or a sickness that we realize we might have, or a betrayal of a friend. We feel these things. We feel the sigh. In the movie Shadowlands, we find a remarkably accurate story of C.S. Lewis and his relationship with his wife, Joy Gresham. Joy, later in their marriage, um, uh, had cancer and, and passed. And the film is about the agonizing spiritual crisis that C.S. Lewis went on and the story of his growth and development from um, not understanding suffering and the effects of it on our faith and then learning it and, and understanding God through it. Lewis's love led to deep sorrow as he watched his his wife die. And in the movie, he says, C.S. Lewis says, to put it another way, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why must it be pain? Why can't he rouse us more gently with violins or laughter? Because the dream from which we must 
be wakened is the dream that all is well. So the reality is we feel the sigh. We live in this place and it's these spaces that can awaken us to new depths of understanding God and his care for us. And after the death of joy, he wrote in his small book, A Grief Observed, he wrote this, that the death of a beloved is an amputation. He felt the realities of the sigh that I'm referencing. See, Job felt the groan and the sigh. C.S. Lewis felt the groan and the sigh. And the text says we also groan. We are sighing saints, feeling the weight of what is and the yearning of what is to come. And again, Spurgeon speaks to these sufferings. He says, creation glows with a thousand beauties, even in its present fallen condition. Yet, clearly enough, it is not as when it came from the maker's hand. The slime of the serpent is on it all. This is not the world which God pronounced to be very good. We hear of tornadoes, of earthquakes, of tempests, of volcanoes, of avalanches, and of the sea which devoureth its thousands. There is sorrow on the sea, and there is misery on the land, and into the highest palaces as well as the poorest cottages. Death, the insatiable, is shooting its arrows, while his quiver is still full to bursting with future woes. It is a sad, sad world. We feel the sigh. But hallelujah, we don't end with our grief and our sorrow. The text continues, which would be the second point, that we hope in the glory that is to come. We feel the effects of suffering in this life, but the Christian story doesn't end there. The second point is that we hope in the glory to come. Yes, suffering is real, but verse 18 again says, not worth comparing with the hope we have in the glory to come. See, a day will come when the curtain is pulled back and where Jesus comes front and center and the King, King Jesus fulfills his promise. See, death will be put to death. Sin will be erased and the dragon will be slayed. And until then, the text tells us creation groans, creation longs, eagerly expecting for this day to come. Again, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And within there's an allegory of life for us that we can glean from. There's a witch that caused a curse in this place called Narnia. And in this place called Narnia, the curse was that it was always winter and never Christmas. That it was always sad forevermore. And the promise was that there was going to be one who came who would bring about a breaking of that curse. There's this murmurings of a lion, and this lion is named Aslan, who would come and break the curse. And one of the first characters in the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Beaver, he speaks to that. He says, it's not the man who came into Narnia who's going to bring about redemption. It is the lion who's going to come and bring about redemption. See, we, Aslan has a picture of Jesus, and as Mr. Beaver waited for Aslan, so we are eager, eager to see Jesus finished what he promised. We wait for it with patience, and we wait for it with hope. Creation will be freed from these chains. And that's good news for us. We feel the pain, and we feel the sorrow, and it's like, what the heck? Where is God in all of this? And we're in the middle of the story, 
And yet we know where this story is going. We can be smack dab in the middle of it, frustrated and confused, and yet we look to the end because the Bible tells us about the end. And it tells us about one who's going to break the curse. And we wait, and we're eager to long and hope for that day. We now hope for a day where though we are now enslaved in decay, we will be set free from those chains. Longing to obtain the freedom of the glory of being the children of God. It talks about this language of, of first fruits. That's important for us, that the Spirit is given as first fruits of what is to come. The first fruits were always the pledge of the harvest. It was a sign that the harvest was going to come. And as soon as the Israelites had plucked the first fruits, the handful of, of ripe ears, they were to him proof of the harvest that was to come. That didn't end and celebrating that as the harvest. It was simply a sign that one day their wagons would be filled with the harvest that was to come. And again, Spurgeon speaks to this. He says, Brethren, the work of the Spirit is called first fruits, because the first fruits were not the harvest. No Jew was ever content with the first fruits, he was content with them for what they were. But the first fruits enlarged his desires for the harvest. If he had taken the first fruits home and said, I have all I want, and had rested satisfied month after month, he would have given proof of madness. For the first fruit does but whet the appetite, does but stir up the desire it never was meant to satisfy. So it's just, it's a sign. It's pointing to the fact the Spirit is, is with us, pointing to the fact that God has given us a deposit, but this thing ain't done. And we hope with anticipation of that day. It is this hope we wait eagerly for. Tim Keller, who recently passed, shared in a Zoom call um, during COVID uh, a message of hope to us. You guys remember those Zoom calls? This is all we had for a while. It was maddening, I know, for many of us. Some of you still love it, and, and bless you. You just don't want to be around people, and so the, the screen helps keep you safe. Uh, and so the, in the first weeks of COVID, uh, Keller was, was asked about some things, and, and he reminded in this Zoom call uh, us about our hope as he navigated through, one, his own diagnosis of cancer, and two, the uncertainty of COVID. He said this, marvelous statement. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, seen by hundreds of people, then everything is actually going to be okay. And the message of Jesus is, is so much more than just this pithy kind of thing that we want to kind of use as a crutch. No, this is our everything. That if he got out of the grave, and if he walked among us, if he was risen from the dead, then friends, everything will be okay. See, what is to come is a resurrected world. Other religions get a consolation of the world. But no, 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 not with Christianity. Because Jesus rose, bodily rose, we are promised both that our bodies will rise from the dead. And we are promised that this world will be cleansed of sin and renewed. This thing isn't going to blow up and we're just going to go on a cloud somewhere else. No, he's going to come to earth, restore all things with all who have put their trust in Jesus. And friends, everything is going to be okay. So yeah, life is short. 
Life is hard. Life is confusing. We can cry now because sorrow is real. But Jesus was raised, and by his wounds we are healed. All shall be well. You know, when he first, Tim Keller, found out about his diagnosis in 2021, um, it is, he says this, It is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty. I'm glad we have kids in here, and I love that we get to hear that noise right now. It's, it's funny to me. Um, always a fan of the kids' noises, especially the toys. Um, I, I stay focused, though, Ernie. Okay, so Tim Keller. When you hear that noise in the middle of the night when you walk down the hallway and the closet makes that noise, it is a little bit more scary. Um, but nonetheless... Tim Keller, again, after his diagnosis, said this, It is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. And therein is my hope and strength. I loved in his last few years as we saw the uncertainty of COVID and and the stability that he reminded us of of the gospel. And then he found out about his diagnosis of cancer and the stability he found in the gospel. And then his last words before he passed just a few months ago, he said to his family, he said, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. This message is such an anchor for us as we navigate through suffering. If we believe in this one, this one named Jesus, We can fear not, and we can look up. Better days are ahead. We hope in the glory to come. In 1744, the great hymn writer um, Charles Wesley penned these words. He said, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So friends, we have hope. The text doesn't end for us this morning. I'll read one more little section. We'll be done. Romans eight twenty six. it says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Third and final point for us is this. Thanks be to God that we have secure hope in our sorrow. So Paul ends with this segment with a great reminder of the Spirit who is among us and who is holding us. He says, the Spirit helps. Those are the very words of Jesus. He said, I'm going to send you one, a helper. Another translation, an advocate, a counselor. One just like me is going to be sent to you to help and to comfort 
you. He helps us in our weaknesses. Friends, you're not alone. Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Not only does he help, but he intercedes. Another word for that is he intervenes on behalf of another. He's aware, and he's bridging the gap, and he's caring for you. And then the text says, and we know. There's two assurances we have in this text and the one next week. The one next week, I'll wait for next week. But the one for this week, he says, and we know that those who submit their lives to God, those who love God, he says, all things work together. I mean, this verse has been used and weaponized and abused to over-spiritualize, to remove grief, to remove lament, and that's not the point. Sometimes the best thing you can do for a brother or sister who's struggling is to weep with those who weep. You don't have to always have an answer. Sometimes you can just exist in the place of silence and say, I'm sorry, I love you. And here with this text, we see all things work together or all things collaborate, that he will turn evil for good. That God is about redemption always and forevermore. He is about turning atrocities and sorrows and sighs for good. And this verse is echoing even the life of Joseph. If you remember the life of Joseph in the end of Genesis, we find this guy who was betrayed, this guy who was rejected. He was a victim of power. He was misunderstood He was confused, and yet he stayed the course of faith, trusting in a God he couldn't see. And at the end of his life, the story turns, and his brothers who threw him into slavery were actually the ones that were lying upon him. He saw them. They didn't see him. And when he first reveals himself to them, he says in Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, God doesn't cause evil, but God turns all things for good. Paul uses five verbs describing the comfort for the saint who sighs at the very end of this text we just read. He says that God foreknew, he knows. Secondly, that God decided that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Third, that God called you, invited you to be his. Fourth, that he justified He pronounced you righteous and holy, not by your works, but by his grace alone. And then fifth, that he, God glorified, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. So two things to glean here, that what God started, he's going to finish. What God started, he's going to finish. Paul is not trying to start a theological argument here about Calvinism. He's trying to give us assurance as we sigh. His assurance here is he's trying to give assurance to those who are sighing and saying that God will not leave you. He is with you. There's a deep level of assurance here that Paul's trying to provide for us. For those who are suffering, barely holding on, confused, wondering where God is, you have assurance. What God started in you, he's going to finish. Friends, if you are sighing, your God your father isn't finished. Second thing we glean from this ending section is that God is using all things to make you more like Jesus. He's using all things to make you more like Jesus. See, one of God's main purposes in your life is to make you more like Jesus. It says that he's going to work all things for good, The prosperity gospel would run with this in a way that Paul would never intend for us. The good Romans 8 talks about is not giving you better circumstances. 
as if bad events will automatically lead to better events. The good of Romans 8 is that God is kind enough to make you more like Jesus along the way. This is loving care for you to shape you and form you to turn things for good. He is using all things to conform you into his son Jesus. So two pastoral thoughts as we close. The first is this, that we worship a God who's acquainted with our suffering. We worship a God who's acquainted with our suffering. Jesus is known as the suffering servants. Most religions uh, share a similarity about a mighty God who created all things, but none have a picture of that God entering himself into the story that he wrote to be the answer and the hero and the one made flesh and the one who would redeem all things. See, the God of the Bible entered into our suffering. There's such comfort in the God who is aware, who can empathize, but he doesn't just stay there. He also has the power to bring about good purposes even from the darkest of things. So we read in Hebrews 4, 14 this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been, given, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we worship, a, we worship a God who is acquainted with our suffering. The last pastoral thought is that his plan is to make everything beautiful in its time. His plan is to make everything beautiful in his time. He uses all the ingredients to make everything beautiful. He can brilliantly use the good, the bad, and the ugly to make things beautiful. He makes everything beautiful in his time. We are on the human side of time. We don't see as God sees, uh, you think about that stained, if you think about a stained glass window, <clears throat> we've talked about this before, but even the most beautiful like St. Chappelle, these, these picturesque uh, realities of stained glass, from afar it's this tapestry of beauty. But you go up close, it's just filled with broken glass. And sometimes that's all we can see in life. Just the, the realities of jagged edges and broken pieces and understanding, not understanding why this happens. And then when you back up and you see the picture that God sees, what you see is not what we see. You see a picture of beauty and how he takes the jagged pieces and the brokenness and he turns it into this beautiful tapestry. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Spurgeon closed by saying this, While you shall for a while sigh for more of heaven, you shall soon come to the abodes of blessedness, where sighing and sorrow shall flee away. The reality is, is this, we will sigh. We will go through so sorrow, disappointment, unmet expectation, betrayal, confusion, pain. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. But we are not like those who have no hope. The story for us, the final verdict is not death. 
The story is not complete until he comes again and makes all things new. And that is what drives us as we navigate through this life, that we serve a God, we worship a God who is acquainted with our weaknesses and a God who will bring all things together for good. In this life, friends, you and I will have trouble. But don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said, because he has overcome the world. It's a heavy text for us, but it's good news. It's a text that actually reads us in a way that few things else can. The Bible isn't just trying to gloss over realities of life. No, it's honest enough to say that life is hard, but it's also honest enough to say that God isn't done, and he's at work, and he is on the move, and he will bring all things new. And for it we trust, and for it we hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hope. We recognize that there are so many curveballs in life. So many things we thought would happen that don't, things we didn't think that would happen would. We recognize that we want to be put in the driver's seat more oftentimes than not. We want to assume that we understand, that we know what's best, that we feel like we have some level of pseudo-control, that we think that we know better than you. And, and in some ways, we just let go this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have a posture of openness to know that you are the one that holds all things together. We accept our plight in knowing that we are not God. Only you are. And I pray that you'd give us the gift of faith. Help us to trust you. We thank you that you're not done, that you are at work. Lord, for some of my friends this morning that feel it, feel it deeply, Lord, I ask for hope. Ask for comfort. Ask for peace. Lord, we give you thanks. That you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Even as we partake in communion, I pray that you'd remind us of the gift of God that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.